Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hi, it's great to be with you. We love being with you. And I, today I'm with, uh, I'm Peter Hart and I'm with Gary Bain. Gary, what are we do today? Who are you normally with then? I'm with anybody but you normally. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, today, Pete, we're going to do uh, Siegfried Sassoon, the soldier, as opposed to the hairdresser. Oh, so, yes. Ballad, more about his military career than about his uh, poetry. But we're, We've got some of his poetry, uh, some of it... Uh, a soup song. Yeah, some, some uh, people may well have heard of. Some so who may is not he? Come done. on, if he's not a hairdresser... Well, he, he was an English poet, an English war poet, although he, he did start writing poetry before the war. Um, he was a prose writer and a very brave soldier. Ooh. Now, his poetry often described the horrors of the uh, trenches and satirised the uncaring nature of authority figures and uncaring civilians. Now... Uh, he he eventually cracked and uh, he well, protested. The walls, yeah, they? they got to him and he protested uh, in his uh, titled "Finished with the War: A Soldier's Declaration of 1917," which culminated in his admission to a military psychiatric hospital and his famous friendship with Wilfred Owen. Yeah, so, so I'm looking forward to this. So, uh, when was he born? He was born on uh, 8th September 1886 in Matfield, which is near Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Oh, look, you told me that. <laughs> His father, Alfred Sassoon, was Jewish, but he'd married outside the faith to an Anglo-Catholic uh, called Teresa Thornycroft. So uh, he was disinherited by his wealthy merchant family. Now... Even did did was, that leave them poverty? No, stupid. even though he was uh, disinherited, they were still very well off. Uh, you would describe them as upper middle class, Pete. They were living in a fairly big house, Wheelie in Matfield. Now, I've, his I've, name... I've come to think of it, I've, I've seen that. It is a big house. It's Well, big, big compared to yours, and yours is a palatial mansion. He lived in a house, a very big yeah, house in, in the, the country. country. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Now, his name... It's an unusual name, Siegfried. Uh, it came apparently from his mother's poor taste in Wagnerian operas. Yeah, she must have really had bad taste. Nothing worse than a Wagnerian opera. Anyway, so uh, so uh, any brothers and sisters? 
he was the second of three sons, uh, although when he was four, his parents separated acrimoniously. And indeed, when Alfred Sassoon visited, uh, their mother used to hide herself away. <laughs> Sorry. I've, I've, I Janet does something fairly similar when you visit. Yeah, I know. She's, she's not, not around, around, is she? She's not around, is she? But uh, I, the, the, there's a quote from Sassoon. It's quite a, a sad little quote, isn't it, for anyone who lost a parent rather earlier than they, they should have done. Uh, I wanted to enjoy my parents simultaneously, not autumn. <laughs> that's sort of funny and quite sad. It is. And, uh, you know, my own circumstances, my own mother left when I was four years old, so yeah, yeah. I can I can equate to that. So just as you were becoming sentient, she buggered off? Uh, I've never been sentient. <laughs> now, so, uh, so what sadly, happened? his father died uh, in 1895 of tuberculosis, so, so 1895, he was he about nine years old, wasn't oh, he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, so very young. Uh, but from the age of 15, Sassoon was educated at Marlborough College in Wiltshire. He did well at cricket. Uh, but he had a, a, a series of illnesses that sort of hampered his academic achievements. He then studied first law and then history at Clare College, uh, Cambridge University, from 1905 to 1907. Now, he, he ran into a problem there, which was not related to illness, was it? It was related, related to being bone idle and more interested in poetry than the subjects he was meant to be doing. Yeah, he didn't put in the required effort, I think, is how we would describe it nowadays. And so um, he gave up and left without a degree. So we've got to remember, this is a privileged young man. He can leave. He doesn't have to work. He's just living... Living at Wearley back in uh, Kent and, and uh, doing bugger all except... Uh, well, he, he spent the next few years hunting foxes, playing cricket and uh, writing self-published poetry. <laughs> he must have been popular with the local. So, um, right, so uh, he has a success, doesn't he, early on uh, with a, uh, a thing called the Daffodil Murderer. That's 1913. Which uh, and uh, This is clearly... We, did, we wouldn't have known this, but for uh, looking it up, it was a parody of John Macefield... Uh, I don't know what that is when it's at home. I know he was a dreadful First World War author. And it features a Sussex farmhand ruin an accidental manslaughter charge he got after a fight in a local pub. That sort of thing that used to happen to you and your chums in the army, wasn't it? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we were never charged with manslaughter. It was usually murder. <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh, so he's, he's living there. He's got a, a small... He's got a, an adequate... Private income about four hundred pound a year, which is a lot fortune. of money at the that time. That is a lot of money. I mean, um, um, and late, he does become richer, doesn't he? Though, what happens to him? Well, much later in life, uh, he he has a rich auntie who leaves him enough to buy Hatesbury uh, House in Wiltshire. Oh, what's the matter, Pete? Well, I want a rich auntie. Well, I can't have a rich. My auntie's dying. I get nothing. Well, I, I often think of you as my rich auntie because yeah. I'm going to get a few quid when you go. Yeah, probably, probably. But yeah. at least 50. Um, now, uh, so he's growing up. He's, he's conflicted in his... Sec well, I'm not sure he's conflicted in his sexuality, but he's, 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 he's neither here nor there at the time. He's a sort of mostly homosexual, muddled bisexual. Um, I don't think, I'm not sure he ever really resolved what he was. It's not our business, is it, Gary, really? No, We're no, not no, going to... No. This isn't what this is about. There's lots of stuff about this on the... Uh, well, in books and the, th and the internet. Uh, was he a, a deep polit uh, political thinker? Well, I've got another quote from him which shows the depth of his thought on uh, 
world affairs. I, I think you'll be impressed by this, Gary, because it's much akin to your own liberal views. Uh, France was a lady, Russia was a bear, and performing in the county cricket team was much more important than either of them. Uh, <laughs> What's cricket? It's that game that's not football they play in the summer. Oh. Uh, so uh, uh, he, he, he tried to play cricket. He, he, he was a good bowler, uh, not bad batsman, enthusiastic, good connections, lots of private tuition because he's rich, but he wasn't quite good enough in the end. He played cricket for Matfield Village, played cricket for a lot of teams. And I, I've, the first time I was ever really away, you're going to be fascinated by the next, the next bit. It's about cricket, Gary. I am. I am you're, you're hanging on my every I word. Am, I could see. Uh, I what? am falling asleep as we talk. Why are you drinking coffee then? Because <laughs> I'm falling asleep as we talk. Oh, to keep it away. Anyway, he wrote a brilliant chapter in one of his books after the war about called The Flower Show Match, which is just brilliant. Uh, you ought to read it, you might like cricket. Uh, and it describes his fictional alter ego, George Sherston. It's from George Sherston's programme. In a match between Matfield and Brenchy. And I played in a recreation of this when I played for the Imperial War Museum team. Again, in the recreation, it was in the 1990s sometime, and they actually had the, the green, it was played on everything. Oh, I was dead impressed. There was a crowd, and there was a brass band, and there was a commentary from a, a bloke uh, or, or through a loudspeaker. And I was uh, on the other side, there was Dennis Silk, who you will remember well, of course, with your love of cricket, was uh, he, he, he captained Somerset, and he was in test teams, uh, not non test English teams, yeah. And uh, I thought he was about 150 million years old. He seemed... I couldn't believe he was still walking, never mind playing cricket. He was, uh, he was about... Uh, he was mid-60s, I expect. But uh, I, I, I had to bowl at him and he kept smashing my slow slow military medium instringers to all parts of the ground. And the commentator would say, and he's hit another one for four. Well, that bowler must be embarrassed at bowling such a touch. It was... <laughs> This ball went, but uh, I now look back on that and think. Did you oh, bowl underarm? No, I, I might as well have done. <laughs> uh, but he was in his mid sixties then. Uh, and prime I, of life, Pete. Prime of life. Prime of life. Prime of life. That's it. Um, now, war comes. War comes. Uh, what does he do when war comes? Well, so soon joins C Squadron of the uh, first. Sussex Yeomanry. First, first. First, first, sorry. Yes. The Sussex Yeomanry as a trooper. <clears throat> and he does that on the 4th of August, 1914. That day. The day Britain declared war on Germany. So it, Why? Well, he seems to have felt it was his duty to his country and to his neighbours. And initially, uh, they were billeted at Hode Farm near Canterbury. Uh, that's near, I think I've seen that actually. That's near your holiday yeah. mansion, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think I've seen it. And this is a quote from him. And uh, are we to know? There's something. Here's what he says Only one gent in the ranks, young Hope, son of J.E. Hope, the dullest man in Parliament, isn't he? <laughs> and his son takes after his papa. The colonel asked me to be an officer, but I, I don't feel equal to the effort. Although it would be a more satisfactory existence. There's something almost idyllic about those early weeks of the war. The flavour and significance of life were around me in the homely smells of the thriving farm where we were quartered. My own abounding health responded zestfully to the outdoor world. So a sort of halcyon days. Halcyon. 
Halcyon. Now, in October 1914, he fell off his horse and he broke his arm badly. Now, this is quite unusual because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, he was a fox hunter. He was a good horseman. He was uh, he was uh, seeing he was to get breaking in new horses and uh, something went wrong. Uh, you know. He... Now he spent some months recovering back at uh, Wheelie. He had spent a life having his every need catered for by servants and grooms. You have your every need catered to by Janet. Well, as do you by Polly, I understand. But as a trooper, he was at the beck and call of every officer and NCO. So menial tasks were absolutely a new thing to him. Yeah, and uh, I suppose he got more and more tempted because he he can get a commission at any time uh, with, with his background and he got more and more tempted. Does he give in? Yeah, he gives in and uh, he accepts a commission with the third special reserve of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. So uh, in April 1915, he reports to training depot at Litherland. That's just north of Liverpool, the the home of the greatest... I've never heard of it. The home of the greatest football club in the world. I've never heard of it. Liverpool, I mean. I've heard of Liverland. <laughs> Liverland FC. And he goes through the normal training for a second lieutenant. And he doesn't shine. He adopts what I understand you military folks would call a grey man tactic. Now, you might like to explain. What, what's a grey man tactic? Well, just, you know, not, not be obvious for anything. Just melt into the background. Don't stand out, but don't be equally, don't be bad. So middle of the road, I suppose you would describe it. Just, just get on with it. Get the job done. Not drawing attention Don't to draw yourself. attention. Now, he spends a lot of his time playing golf. This is the... This is what playing it's, golf? But this is what it took. You spend a lot of your time playing golf. I didn't in the army. <laughs> you wouldn't have been allowed, would you? No. And, uh, it, 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 I mean, the lads didn't spend their time playing golf. This is the difference about being an officer, of course. This is why he'd, why he'd given way to temptation. Um The people who are training him, how does he feel about them? The dugout training officers, the dugout NCOs, the older people. What what does he think about them? Well, he doesn't think that they've got any real knowledge of the reality of modern warfare. Now, he thinks that later on, but at the start, does he really know what it's like himself? No, no, he doesn't. And, and, you know, later in his poetry, there's a powerful theme that develops uh, about that. And, and, and he, he, he reflects that in some of his war poetry. We'll, have, we'll come back to that. Now, the, he makes a couple of mates there. Well, one in particular. Sorry, let's, let's just concentrate on one. And, and that's another trainee officer. That's 2nd Lieutenant David Thomas. Um, now, he, who is he in the George Sherston trilogy? Well, he's the Dick Tiltwood in the George Sherston trilogy. Now... Um, both of those were, were sent to uh, Pembroke College, Cambridge to complete their training. Uh, right, more officer training. So they, so they stay together. Now, I think at this point, as we mentioned, later on he'd look back and, and, and pin up, and he doesn't like dugout officers and things, but at the time he has somewhat naive and sentimental belief in the war. And you're reading the poems uh, because of your, uh, well, you're just... Wonderful voice. Uh, and your cultured nature. <laughs> yes, so you're going to read a poem called Absolution, and this is naive in the extreme, and it's, it, it, it shows a different thing to what you, we're used to from Sassoon later in the war. I used to have to clean the absolutions when I was in the army. <laughs> yeah, with your toothbrush. Yes. <laughs> the anguish of the earth absolves our eyes, till beauty shines in all that we can see. War is our scourge, yet war has made us wise, and fighting for our freedom we are free. Horror of wounds and anger at the foe, and loss of things desired, all these must pass. We are the happy legion. 
for we know time's but a golden wind that shakes the grass now that's pretty idealistic and uh, uh, um, all the all things must pass george harrison put it uh, but all it, it's all pretty naive uh, and the first blow comes quite early uh, because his brother his brother what happens to him second lieutenant uh hamo h a m o hamo uh, he's serving with the Royal Engineers and he, he's badly wounded. What happens to him? Well, he's badly wounded in the leg, uh, shattering the bone on the 28th of October during wiring operation in no man's land at Souvla Bay. Gallipoli. Gallipoli. Uh, now, rather than expose his men to sniper fire coming out to rescue him, he crawled back, falling over the parapet into the trench. Well, that can't have done him any good. No, it probably exacerbates his wounds. And he died on the hospital ship uh, Kildonan Castle on the 1st of November. He's actually commemorated on the Hellas Memorial. I'll tell you what, we'll have a look for him. Because we'll it'll, be, the, it'll be pretty easy to find. Yeah, um, I would have thought so. On the Royal Engineers, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, now, uh, so that's a blow to Sassoon. On 17th of November, he's sent out with David Thomas to join C Company, 1st Royal Welsh Fusiliers on the Western Front at La Hamel. That's near Batoon, as you know. And he gets there on the 25th of November. Now, he becomes close friends with another young officer then serving with the uh, the, the first Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and we've encountered him before in a couple of podcasts, and it's the uh, the legendary figure of uh, Lieutenant Robert Graves. Um, now, uh, we've got a quote that you're going to read from Robert Graves, who, uh, which describes his first meeting with Sassoon. Let, let, let rip, Robert. I went to visit Sea Company Mess, where I got a friendly welcome. I noticed the essays of Lionel Johnson lying on the table. It was the first book I'd seen in France that was neither a military textbook nor a rubbishy novel. I stole a look at the flyleaf and the name was Siegfried Sassoon. Then I looked around to see who could possibly be called Siegfried Sassoon and bring a copy of Lionel Johnson with him to the 1st Battalion. The answer being obvious, I got into conversation with him and a few minutes later we set out for Bethune. Being off duty until dusk and talked about poetry. Yeah, and that's that's the essence of that. They become really close friends and, and, and exchanging. And, and and Robert Graves sort of guides Sassoon quite a bit in, in a, a different attitude. Now, in, in Memoirs of an Infantry Officer, uh, that's part of the George Sherson trilogy, uh, Sassoon uh, calls uh, Graves David Cromleck, um, and and this is uh, this is his quote. He says, at his best. I'd always found him an ideal companion, although his opinions were often disconcerting. But no one was worse than he was at hitting it off with officers who distrusted cleverness and disliked unreserved utterances. In fact, he was a positive expert at putting people's back up unintentionally. The colonel was heard to remark that young Cromleck threw his tongue a hell of a lot too much. He wasn't good at being seen but not heard. Not a grey man, eh? No, not a grey man. Now, Graves seems to have quickly influenced Sassoon towards a much more gritty realism in his uh, poetic outpourings. And you've got a quote from Sassoon here. My inner life is far more real than the hideous realism of this land of the war zone. I never thought to find such peace. If it were not for mother and friends, I would pray for a speedy death. I want a genuine taste of the horrors and then peace. I don't want to go back to the old inane life, which always seemed like a prison. I want freedom, not comfort. I've seen such, I've seen beauty in life, in men 
and in things. But I can never be a great poet or a great lover. The last 15 months have unsealed my eyes. Um, now, Sassoon was made platoon officer at the line while the that, unit was on rest. And he's then appointed transport officer. So was not initially in the front line for several months. Now, the tone of his writing does start to change. What do you think the influence of that is? It's not If he's out of the line, it can't be his own experience. Who's, who's guiding him, do you think? Well, it's got to be Graves, hasn't it? And what's he going from? Well, he, he's, going from his, he's going from a sort of dilettantist sentimentality to a, a, a discordant new brutalism, which it's, it's designed to smash home the nature of trench warfare to civilians back home. Now, two things ha- uh, are sort of guiding it as well. One is the death of his brother, Hamo, uh, but also uh, his, his chum, uh, David Thomas, um, who, who was really close to him. And uh, Robert Graves is a witness to what happens on the night of the 18th of March, 1916. Graves is in the trenches with A Company. And what does he say? About half past ten, rifle fire broke out on the right and the sentries passed along the news. Oh, it's a hit! Richardson hurried away to investigate. He came back to say, It's young Thomas, a bullet through the neck, but I think he's all right. It can't have hit his spine or an artery, because he's walking to the dressing station. Then news came that David was dead. The regimental doctor, a throat specialist in civil life, had told him, You'll be all right, only don't raise your head for a bit. David then took a letter from his pocket, gave it to an orderly and said, Post this. The doctor could see that he was choking and tried tracheotomy, but too late. What had happened is, in, in trying to get this letter, he'd sort of gone like that, leaned forward, and of course raised his head, and that it was that was meant to, to be. Now, the fact that this was a letter to his girlfriend, I suppose that might have had some sort of resonance with uh, Siegfried Sassoon as well, uh, in one sense. But he seems to be driven almost mad with grief, doesn't he? He reacts badly, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, he gets he gets filled with thoughts of vengeance and he, he becomes a, an almost suicidally brave young officer. Um, he's, he's christened Mad Jack by the men, so that should tell you something. Um, Why? Night, Why? What, what's he doing then? Well, at night he undertakes a, a series of voluntary patrols and he's accompanied only by a couple of men, <clears throat> excuse me, creeping out into no man's land, armed with a, a knobkerry and a revolver. Now, knobkerry is like a, a, Clubby a, a thing. club, you know, big knot on the end of a, a, a lump of wood, and, and hurling grenades. Now, that's using his cricket bowling skills. Um, whenever he heard the Germans. Now, if you were using your cricket bowling skills, they'd hit it straight back at you. They would, yes. <laughs> right, thank you for that. <laughs> I wonder if that was pre-planned. Right, now, this is what Siegfried Sassoon says. No Man's Land fascinates me with its jumble of wire tangles and snaky seams in the earth winding along the landscape. The mine craters are rather fearsome with snipers hidden away on the lips and pools of dead-looking water. I'm not going out for nothing tonight. I know I ought to be careful careful of myself but something drives me on to look for trouble. Greaves tried to stop me going out last night but that was child's play. Only two or three snipers shots at us uh, and the white rocket lights going up while we lay flat and listened to our bumping hearts and laughed with sheer delight when the danger was over. Now he's filled with a visceral hatred for the Germans who killed his friend and he goes on to say I used to say I couldn't kill anyone in this war 
But since they killed Tommy, I would gladly stick a bayonet into a German by daylight. Someone told me a year ago that love and sorrow and hate were things I'd never known. Things that every poet should know. Now I've known love for Bobby and Tommy and grief for Hamo and Tommy. And hate has come also and the lust to kill. And on the 2nd of April 1916, he writes a new poem. And you're going to read the, this one's called Peace. In my heart there's cruel war that must be waged, in darkness vile with moans and bleeding bodies maimed, a gnawing hunger drives me wild to be a sage, and bitter lust chuckles within me unashamed. Now, th- th- that's not a golden wind that shakes the grass. That, that, that This is... Well, there's also not much peace in it, is there? No. Uh, his feelings are really chaotic. This is this is something else he, he wrote. At the, uh, I'm living in a morose hunger for the next time I can get over the wine, look for Germans with a bludgeon. Stockwell wants a prisoner and I'm going to get one. But it isn't for that that I'm going out. I want to smash someone's skull. I want to have a scrap and get out of the war for a bit or forever. If I get shot, it will be rotten for some people at home. But I'm bound to get it in the neck sometime. So why not make a creditable show? and let people see that poets can fight as well as anybody else and death is the best adventure of all. Now, do you get the resonance there to Peter Pan? Yeah. Uh, death be an awfully big adventure. That, that, it, it, he's all over the place, isn't he? Anyway, what happens next? Well, on the 25th of May 1916 at uh, Morland a 28-man raiding party led by Lieutenant Stansfield was held up on the German barbed wire. Now, Sassoon had been assigned duties back in the British front line when a messenger came back to tell him that the raiders were unable to get through the barbed wire. Now, this is a long quote, but it's quite powerful. And he said, and Sassoon says this, O'Brien says it's a failure. They're all going to throw a bomb and retire. A minute or two later, a rifle shot rings out and almost simultaneously several bombs are thrown by both sides. A bomb explodes right right in the water at the bottom of the left crater close to our men and showers a pale spume of water. There are blinding flashes and explosions, rifle shots, a scurry of feet, curses and groans, and stumbling figures loom up from below and scramble awkwardly over the parapet, some wounded, black faces and whites of eyes and lips showing the dusk. When I've counted 16 in, I go forward to see how things are going and find Stansfield wounded and leave him there with two men who who soon get him in. Other wounded men crawl in. I find one hit in the leg. He says, O'Brien is somewhere down the crater, badly wounded. They're still throwing bombs and firing at us. The sinister sound of clicking bolts seems to be very near. Perhaps they have crawled out of their trench and are firing from behind their advanced wire. Bullets hit the water in the craters and little showers of earth patter down on the crater. Five or six of them firing into a crater a few yards range. The bloody sods are firing down at me at point-blank range. I really wondered whether my number was up. From our trenches and in front of them, I can hear the mumble of voices. Most of them must be in by now. After minutes, like hours, with great difficulty, I get round the bottom of the crater and back towards our trench. At last I find O'Brien down a very deep, about 25 feet, and precipitous crater. He's moaning, and his right arm is either broken or almost shot off. He's also hit in the right leg, body and head also, but I couldn't see that then. Another man is with him. He's hitting the right arm. 
I leave them there and get back to our trench for help. Shortly afterwards, Lance Corporal Stubbs is brought in. He has had his foot blown, up, blown off. I get a rope and two more men, and we go back to O'Brien, who is unconscious now. With great difficulty, we get him halfway up the face of the crater. It's now after one o'clock and the sky beginning to get lighter. I make one more journey to our trench for another strong man and to see to a stretcher being ready. We get him in, that's O'Brien, and it's found that he has died, as I had feared. Wow, and that's quite a, quite a... He's going backwards and forwards across no man's land, under fire. Man yeah. Jack. You did very well to read that, so so I think I'll do the next quote by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Stockwell. Oh, well, is this another long one? Oh, he says, It was largely owing to Sassoon's bravery, bravery that it has not been a complete disaster. Yes, well, thank you. Thank that's, you. That's all right. <laughs> and uh, Sassoon, uh, as I say, he's called Mad Jack. And, and this is another quote from me. He says, they say I'm trying to kill myself. Am I? I don't know. Again, he's all over the place, isn't he? And a couple of months later, he's awarded the Military Cross uh, for this action. And the citation, you're going to read the citation, aren't you? For conspicuous gallantry during a raid on the enemy's trenches, he remained for one and a half hours under rifle and bomb fire, collecting and bringing in our wounded. Owing to his courage and determination, all the killed and wounded were brought in. Now that's that, that's that, quite something. That really. is quite something. And, and Mad Jack, he's, he's this is a brave, if not heroic, young officer. Now on the fourth of July, the first Royal Welsh Fusiliers took part in the attack on Mamet's Wood, and Sassoon was in a reserve company. But he moved forwards and then pushed on alone, trying to get a German sniper and attacking a German trench. And you've got another quote, Pete. Yeah, Mad Jack again. I went across from our bombing post where where Wood Trench ended, as there was a Bosch sniper. The others tried at the parapet, so they didn't... The, the others... <laughs> They're at the parapet. Sorry, I misread that. So they didn't see me coming. When I got there, I chucked four Mills bombs into their trench. And to my surprise, 50 or 60 ran away like hell into my Mets wood. That's quite something. And now, the idea he then sat down and began reading a book of poems is, ah, is, 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 is surely... It's not mentioned in any of his sources. Uh, yeah, it's apocryphal, isn't it? And yeah. he was later recommended for uh, the MC or even the DSO, but he received neither. Yeah. Um, but then there's more bad news on the 19th of July. Robert Graves was badly wounded, and indeed he was initially reported as dead, and Sassoon was once again asking... Well, this is a quote from him. He says, Won't they leave anyone we're fond of? Um, quite sad, really. Uh, but but uh, there's good news coming. We'll come back to that. In late July, he gets dis- that most. Is that the good news? <laughs> yeah, no. Late July, he gets dysentery. <laughs> the most poetic of diseases, as you recall from <laughs> yes. that. Do you remember that time in Glippery when you had Bain's disease? Yes, I do. But he, he doesn't only get that. He gets the full gambit, doesn't he? he gets- yeah, trench fever. Oh, and a respiratory infection. They've been going around a bit recently, haven't they? Yeah, and uh, on the 2nd of August, he's evacuated for a lengthy convalescence back in the UK. Now, what is the good news? Well, he's delighted to find that Graves was not occupying one. Now... <gasps> what a great pun! That That is a pun, Pete. And and I can't take all the credit for that. that, that no, 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 let's move on. That That is that your I, pun. I think it's brilliant. Pun. And I had to ask you what it was because I didn't get it. <laughs> Nor did I when I read the notes. <laughs> uh, right, so uh, let's so soon. So good news is that that, that that Graves is still alive. That that and that cheers him up a bit. Now Sassoon's 
busy himself. He's preparing for the publication, a proper publication, not self-published, although that's no disrespect to self-published books. Um, uh, what, 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 what is, uh, what's it called? Well, it's Old Huntsman and Other Poems, uh, and it comes out to a really good reception in 1917. Now, what's what's happening to his poetic instincts? We, 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 this is a, a theme, isn't it? We've talked about it before. What's he what's he drifting towards? Well, what? he's getting increasingly more anti-war sentiments, and and these are, are, are being encouraged by his grand friendship with a group of pacifists. Which who were they? Well, it included Lady uh, Ottoline Morell and Bertrand Russell. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, I've heard of her. She's she's a real character. She used to wear lots of makeup and dramatic clothes. And I th- and, and who and, did Bertrand Russell? Well, that's another subset of rumours. Um, now, Lady Ottoline Morell, she was about six foot tall. And, and it's one of the most enjoyable things about reading his diaries and his other correspondence is that she she clearly terrifies her soon. And, and it, it's, you know, and she, she takes a fancy to him. And it's what they call a doomed romance. I wonder why. Now... He's declared fit for service and he returns to Litherland Training Depot in December 1916. And it's whilst there he, he wrote a really powerful yeah, piece. Yeah, you're going to read this. What, this is called Blighters. The house is crammed, tear beyond tear they grin and cackle at the show while prancing ranks of harlots shrill the chorus drunk with din. We're sure the Kaiser loves the dear old tanks. I'd like to see a tank come down the stalls lurching to ragtime tunes or home sweet home and there'd be no more jokes in music halls to mock the riddled corpses round Faye Palm. Wow. So, uh, yeah, uh, and now, I mean, that's about music halls. As re- I think it, you, you you mentioned off tape that there's a reference to that, possibly the House of Commons in there, music halls. It's, it's a clever, uh, it's a good poem. Now, he's posted back to France in uh, February 1917 and uh, here he falls uh, prey to another Terrible disease. Those dastardly Germans, he gets German measles. Which was serious then. I mean, now it's, unless you're, if you're, well, you look pregnant, but you're not. Uh, um, it, it, I might uh, be. <laughs> well, <laughs> but if, if, if you, those days, it was a nasty disease. Yeah, he's hospitalised for about a month. In Rouen. And he writes another really good poem that shows his attitude to people behind the line. He's not anti He's, he's a very that's his concentration we mentioned it early he doesn't like people behind the line does he and it's called base details if i were fierce and bald and short of breath i'd live with scarlet majors at the base and speed glum heroes up the line to death you'd see me with my puffy petulant face guzzling and gulping in the best hotel reading the role of honor poor young chap i'd say i used to know his father well yes We've lost heavily in this last scrap. And when the war is done and youth stone dead, I toddle safely home and die in bed. Now, I really, really like that poem. And I like his semi-humorous ones. I think they're more powerful for the, for the wit. And the, the, they're pretty sharp, aren't they? Now, the next one, the next one is not... It, it's, a, it's quite a nasty poem in some sense. He didn't like his fellow officers at Rouen visiting the local brothels. And he, he wrote some, well, it's misogynist, dog, dog, it's doggerel, uh, but it has got a great joke at the end of it. So we're, we're going to allow ourselves the privilege of, of, of you And reading. it's fair to say this wasn't intended for publication, was it? This no, is... it is, a, this is just a, a 
It's just the note he scribbles. It's one off the wrist. Right. She met me on the stairs in her chemise. I grinned and offered her a five-franc note. Poor girl. No doubt she did her best to please, but I'd have been far happier with a goat. Now, why is that so funny? Because, I mean, there is a (laughs) humour... Yeah, what? I mean, it's unpleasant, but it is funny. Why because, is it funny? Because the Royal Welsh Fusiliers had a much-favoured regimental goat Much favoured, Gary? What do you mean by much favoured? Well, perhaps it was a bit too close to the truth for some. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we. That, I mean, we shouldn't have read that. We shouldn't have enjoyed it. We did. Um, <laughs> now, Sassoon's posted to join B Company, second Royal Welsh Fusiliers. We've encountered them. And this is the, fam- this is, this is the, this is the famous battalion... That Dunn wrote his memoir, which I believe I gave you a copy that was... Uh, yes, it's up there. You're perfect, the right place. size for you Very to read. small print. Yeah, good. Now, and, and uh, they he's not with them long. In fact, he's not in the front line long at any point. Um, but he's going up to the line in the Arras sector during the, uh, the Battle of Arras. Uh, this is April. And on the way, uh, there's an incident which triggers his most famous poem, or the most famous poem to, to me and you, and that's The General. Good morning, good morning, the general said when we met him last week on our way to the line. Now the soldiers he smiled at are most of them dead and we're cursing his staff for incompetent swine. He's a cheery old card, grunted Harry to Jack as they slogged up to Arras with rifle and pack, but he did for them both with his plan of attack. Now, that are, again, that's an, another one of my favourites by him. And also limericks are one of my favourite forms of poetry. I didn't know you've been to Ireland. <laughs> He's back. He's almost immediately in action, and he's he's put in charge of some a party of about a hundred bombers, and they're sent forward in support, support of the Cameronians, uh, who are about to attack the Hindenburg Line on the sixteenth of April, nineteen seventeen. Uh, and this is a quote from me, uh, second left, uh, no, Lieutenant. But well, I'm not sure what he is at this time. Let's just call him Lieutenant um, uh, Siegfried soon. And, and this is what I'm going to say. There's quite a lot of this as well, so uh, prepare yourself. Lock yourself in for a long walk, Gary. <laughs> At zero hour, 3am, I was sitting self-consciously consciously in the uh, Cameronians' headquarters with a rumbling din going on overhead and my hundred men sitting on the stairs. There were 50 steps up to the outer world. A bone-chilling draft came down the stairway and our men must have regretted our 33rd Division General's edict against the rum ration. The Cameronians' colonel and his adjutant conversed in the constrained tone of men who expected nothing but ill news. There was a large cake on the table. Now, that would have been the entire focus of your attention. It is. Uh, (laughs) I was offered a slice. Your hope is burgeoning, which I ate with embarrassment. I wasn't feeling at all at home. Now, the attack breaks down, and after about three hours, there's a messenger, and Sassoon goes on to say... This messenger entered and proved to be a dishevelled sergeant who blurted out an incoherent statement about their having been driven back after advancing a little way. I got up, stiffly aware that my moment had arrived. No. Probably. I got up, stiffly, aware (laughs) that my moment... You're not stiffly aware... Oh, punctuation is so important, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Probably, I mumbled something to the colonel, but I, I can't remember him giving me any instructions. I'm very conscious of punctuation now. I was, however, 
<laughs> sensitive to the fact that both Colonel and Adjutant were alive to the delicacy of my situation. Their muttered message was, Well, old chap, I suppose you're for it. Yeah, now he had absolutely no idea of what was going on, but he, he took 25 of his bombers forward and he, and he says... I hadn't the slightest idea, much akin to me. Much akin to what I've just said. <laughs> what I was going to do. And my destination was in the brain of the stooping Cameronian guide who trotted in front of me. After dodging and stumbling up a narrow communication trench, we arrived at the wide main trench and there we met the Cameronians. I must have picked up a Mills bomb on the way, for I had one in my hand when I began my conversation with their leader. I had the advantage of him since I was advancing, and he and his men were out of breath and coming away from the objective. I was told that the Germans were all round them and that they were out of bombs. Feeling myself to be, for the moment, an epitome of Royal Welsh Fusiliers' prestige, I became unnaturally jaunty and unconcerned. But where are the Germans? I asked carelessly, tossing my bomb from left hand to right. I can't see any Germans. Now, a Cameronian NCO took him in hand. Neither of us spoke. (laughs) I also was carrying a bag of bombs. We advanced and went round the next bay. I experienced a sobering shock then for a young, fair-haired Cameronian private or pirate. (laughs) Can I borrow your new eyes? (laughs) Yes. Was lying propped against the wall in a pool of his own blood. His open eyes were staring vacantly at the sky. His face was grey and serene. A few yards up the trench was the body of a German officer, crumpled up and still. The wounded Cameronian made me feel angry with our invisible enemies and I slung a couple of bombs in their direction and received a reply in the form of an egg bomb which exploded harmlessly behind me. I went on throwing bombs and advancing while a corporal, who was obviously much more artful and efficient than I, dodged up the saps at the side. Between us we created a considerable demonstration of offensiveness. In this manner, we reached our objective. Now, many people say that you're a considerable demonstration of offensiveness, Pete, don't they? Yes. <laughs> I cannot tell a lie. Now, so soon, he's still all at sea. He's still not got a real clue what's happening, has he, Pete? Not from what I could see here. Here's his quote. I had no idea where, where our objective was, but the corporal told me we'd reached it. <laughs> and he seemed to know what he was about. This, curiously enough, was the first time he spoke to me. I had caught an occasional glimpse of of a retreating German, but the whole thing had been so absurdly easy that I felt like going on still farther. There was a narrow sap running out of the place where we halted. You stay where you are, I remarked to Smart, and then I started to explore the sap. What I expected to find there, I can't say. Finding nothing, I paused for a minute to listen. There seemed to be a lull in the proceedings of the attack. Spasmodic spasmodic machine guns rattled. High overhead, there was an aeroplane. Wouldn't it be surprised if it was beneath? Now, this is where he makes what could have been a fatal mistake. I thought, what a queer business it all was, and then decided to take a peep at the surrounding country. No sooner had I popped my head out of the sap than I received what seemed like a tremendous blow in the back between my shoulders. 
my first notion was that I'd been hit by a bomb from behind. <laughs> what had really happened was that I'd been sniped from in front. Anyway, how, anyhow, my attitude towards life and the war had been instantaneously and completed, completely altered for the worse. I leaned against the wall and shut my eyes. When I opened them again, Sergeant Baldwin was beside me, discreet and sympathetic. To my great surprise, I discovered I was not dead. Now, he's helped back to the main trench by some of the men. Are you husky with emotion? <clears throat> I am. I'm, I'm just husky. This is my husky voice. Now, he's helped back to the trench. And what does he say when he gets there, Pete? After about a quarter of an hour, I began to feel active and heroic again, but, but in a different way. I was now not only a hero, but a wounded hero. I can remember talking excitedly to a laconic Stokes Mortar officer, just fiction, <laughs> who had arrived from nowhere with his weapon. My only idea was to collect all our available ammunition and renew the attack. My overstrained nerves had stirred me up to such a pitch of febrile excitement that I felt capable of the most suicidal exploits. This convulsive energy might have been of some value uh, had there been any rational outlet for it, but there was none. Uh, <laughs> mm. Now, in the end, the action fizzled out and, and he's evacuated back. So nothing happens of all this. Era, new no, he's a very brave man. But, he, he clearly is. But in this particular occasion, it, there's no, no way out. Uh, he's just wounded. He goes back. And what happens when he goes back? Well, on his return for medical treatment in England, Sassoon decides that he's had enough. And uh, he's he's going to make a stand against the conduct of the war. This was a, 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 on an emotional stand based on his own feelings rather than any rational, logical analysis. And it's not about the generals. His his focus is is more about the politicians, about civilians, about about people who who weren't ending the war, who who didn't have objectives. Well, also the purpose of the war. He felt that the, it had changed from a defensive war to a, a more aggressive war. And uh, at the end of his convalescence leave, he, he refuses to return to duty when he's recalled. Now, he's already a, a, a week late in, in July 1917 when he refuses. Now, he's, he's being encouraged in all of this by his pacifist friends. And he sends a letter to his commander of, commanding officer, which he entitled, Finished with the War, A Soldier's Declaration. And you're going to read it, Pete. I am. I'm making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I am a soldier, convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. I believe that this war, upon which I entered as a war of defence and liberation, has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I believe that the purposes for which I and my fellow soldiers entered upon this war should have been so clearly stated as to have been as to have made it impossible to change them, and that had this been done, the objects which actuated us would now be attainable by negotiation. I have seen and endured the suffering of the troops and I can no longer be a party to prolong these sufferings for ends which I believe to be evil and unjust. I am not protesting against the conduct of the war but against the political errors and insincerities for which the fighting men are being sacrificed. On behalf of those who are suffering now, I make this protest against the deception which is being practised on them. 
Also, I believe that I may help to destroy the callous complacence with which the majority of those at home regard the continuance of agonies which they do not share and which they have not sufficient imagination to realise. Powerful, hard-hitting stuff. Probably, Absolutely. Probably helped by pacifist chums in writing it, but that may be a calumny. I'm, 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 it, some of the phrasing doesn't seem quite him. But certainly the, the, the themes that he addresses in his poetry are there. Uh, like at the end, the callous complacence, that reflects that poem about the... It's uh, certainly how he is feeling, if not his words. Now, it's forwarded to the press and it's read out in the House of Commons. Uh, and the letter was seen by some as, as near treasonous. It is seen by some. But on the other hand, this is a very famous poet now. He's the, the old huntsman's done well. And also, he's a young hero, he's isn't he? He's got an MC, hasn't he? So rather than court-martial so soon, the army plays the long game and being kindly and sympathetic when he finally reports to Litherland on the 13th of July. Now, they want him to take a medical Why? Board. Why well, could that be? <laughs> well, then they could class him as unfit for service and have him treated for neurasthenia as it was then known so you know he, he's he's suffering from a shell a, shock a shell shock um, now at first Sassoon refuses to attend but he's becoming frustrated and and he makes a symbolic gesture oh I know what that that is that the famous thing uh, tell us about it well it's thought by some that he threw his military cross into the Mersey on Formby Beach, but it was only his ribbon. And In fact, the description he gives makes it quite clear because he says it floated. I'm not sure medals float. Yeah, and, and the MC itself was rediscovered in uh, 2007. Oh, well, so yeah, that, I remember that vaguely. His son had got it or something. Yeah. It, it was some, I, I don't remember the details. Now, um, his friends, so some of his friends are all for what he's doing. That's his pacifist friends. Yeah. They're really gung-ho for him. Uh, some of his other friends are concerned at him being used as a battering ram and possibly what will happen to him if the army suddenly stop playing a long game and a friendly game. Uh, who's who lead? Who is his friend who's most concerned? And it's a good friend to him in my he's view. He's a good friend to him and he's still alive. And it's Robert Graves. Um, now, he persuades him to attend the medical board and as a result, he's sent to Craig Lockhart's war he, hospital. He appears for him at the medical board and, 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 and so soon isn't quite pleased with what... Basically, Robert Graves saves him from any disciplinary action by, by falling in with the army's plan. And Sassoon doesn't have... He can't maintain his line, can he? No, yeah. but let's be honest. The army could have, as you said, taken a very, very different line. So I think Robert Graves, in this case, is working... Uh, entirely in the interest of his friend. I think so too, and, and, and not in the interest of pacifism and the, glo the global fend uh, war. Or Robert again. Graves. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I think he does a great job. Uh, and I, I know that when he appears at the medical board giving evidence for Sassoon, people think that, hang on, he's not that well himself. <laughs> anyway, where does, where's he sent? And now, funnily enough, we're not doing much about this because we're doing Sassoon the soldier. But where's he sent? He said to Craig Lockhart War Hospital, which Where's is that? near Edinburgh, and uh, he's being officially treated for neuralgia. Now, at, at, at there, this is where you, there's so much rubbish talked about this. He's treated by Dr. W.H.R. Rivers, who's, who's a, a really good psychiatrist. Uh, and uh, he's, he, what does he think of uh, Sassoon? What does he think's wrong with Sassoon, or if anything? 
Well, it he has lots of long conversations where Sasuna sort of ramble on about his favourite subject, What's which that? largely himself, and uh, his emotional reactions. So, so he doesn't consider him as a shell shock. Yeah, he, he, he basically he, he's treated him by talking him through, and so he's also partially playing the army's game as well, sort of talking this whole thing out until Sasuna reverts to Mad Jack and wants to be at the front again. And he should know what he's talking about because he's got three initials. Yeah, that is always a good sign. It's a very good sign. Uh, now, uh, Sassoon later writes, I must never forget Rivers. He is the only man who can save me if I break down again. If I'm able to keep going, it will be through him. Notice he, he considers now that what happened to him was a breakdown. It, it He doesn't maintain this anti-war... Well, he maintains the anti-war line, but he doesn't maintain the, the hard-line statement, the refusing to return to duty, all that, does he? He doesn't maintain it for long. No, rather oddly, he does think that he's had a, a, a breakdown, whereas the Doctor doesn't think that he was suffering from shell shock. So that's that's, that's really quite interesting. Now, now what do, who does he meet while he's there? Well, he meets um, Wilfred Owen, uh, the, the, uh, another great war poet who... He, another second lieutenant. He greatly encourages him in his poetic endeavours and he, he helps Owen to refine his prodigious natural talents. Now, uh, this is interesting because he does... I mean, the, the one of Owen's most famous uh, poems is Anthem for Doomed Youth. I find uh, Owen is worshipped by some. Uh, his poetry is very serious and Sassoon helps refine him and there's, there's a handwritten handwritten amendments to one of his to, to yeah, that Yeah, there is poem. a preserved manuscript, isn't there? Uh, and, and it used to be on display at the Imperial War Museum. I've no idea whether it is or not now uh, because it's all changed since my day which was decades ago now. Um, but um, he does help a lot. Now, um, uh, and 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 he helps refine Owen's poetic talent. Uh, now, um, so so what happens? Uh, it's an ima- his protest. Is it a real political thing? No, it, I mean it's basically uh, an emotional reaction, and uh, his feelings once again have shifted shifted and it moves more towards a willingness to be back at the front with his men, and lads, because he felt guilty. For abandoning them. Oh yeah, but so I mean, I I think he is a little bit. He's sensitive. He's a bit self-obsessed. He's but he, he's young, and he well, he's not that young, but he, he is young. He's young. Yeah, yes, compared to us, he's young, and he's working through some very complex things. He's sensitive, which we're not. And um, at a time of great turmoil, it is. Now he's discharged in November 1917 from Craig Lockhart, and he goes back first to Litherland. He's back in the army now. The army long game has worked, hasn't it? Let's be that blunt. It's worked. January 18, he goes to um, the new Royal Welsh Fusiliers Depot, uh, New Barracks, Limerick, Ireland, and guess what he does there? Is, is it is it write revolutionary poems or take part? In, no, he immerses uh, himself once more in hunting. <laughs> back. Back to that, yes. Uh, but a month later, he's sent to join the 25th Montgomery and Welsh Horse Royal Welsh Fusiliers. That, that's what they'd been, and now they were just an infantry battalion. And they're in Egypt and Palestine for three months. Now, that's uh, a bit like the army, are keeping him away, out of the way. You, uh, you are such a cynic, Gary. Sort of moving to the side. The sidelines. army would never, the army is, would never be so duplicitous. Now, even the army have to uh, realise they're needed in France in early May 1918. Well, what's, happening in, uh, what's happening in the spring of 1918? <laughs> well, they moved back to France to bolster the Western Front because there's uh, the massive German spring offensive. Oh, the Kaiserslautern. However, 
because they're desert trained unit uh, now, they underwent some nine weeks training to bring them up to speed with the new methods of warfare. There are the, lots the of new weapons. I mean, this this is a, the the new warfare, the all arms battle, and everything. Uh, by this time, Sassoon's been promoted to acting captain and given command of A Company, and he throws himself into his new duties. It, this is interesting because he's now uh, all protests. It's all gone. He's now back to being Mad Jack and the rest of it. Damn leave! I don't want it. I don't want to be wounded and wangle a job at home. I want the, the next six weeks and success. He means as a soldier. He's back to that. Uh, now, he receives at this time an advanced copy of his second volume of war poetry, which was uh, entitled Counterattack. That's another success. I it believe. would prove to be a critical and commercial success. Now, it's not... Uh, he was not to be in action long with the 25th uh, Royal Welsh Fusiliers. On the 13th of July 1918, while the battalion was in the Least Valley sector, Sassoon was wounded with a nasty grazing head wound. Now, this was from who a shot. Who fired this shot? This was from a shot fired by a sentry who'd mistaken him for a German. It's probably his name. Uh, <laughs> when he was returning from a patrol carrying his helmet in his hand, a somewhat symbolic headless chicken action really isn't it yes. oh who goes there Siegfried that's a German name I'll shoot him <laughs> funnily enough Graves made the actually warned him when he was a, he said I know something about being having a German name and they will look at you and you'll be an anti-war so that it's, I bet that's exactly Siegfried bang <laughs> Um, now um, it, this, this is a it's not a, that bad it's a it's a nasty nasty wound and uh, uh, this is what he said this next quote is awful there's no humour in it uh, and he says this the chap at the casualty clearing station with his jaw blown off by a bomb a, a, a fine looking chap he was they said he lay there on the bed with one hand groping about on the bandages that covered his whole head and face gurgling every time he breathed his tongue was tied forward to stop him swallowing it the war had gagged him, smashed him. Me? It had spared. People looked at him and tried to forget what they'd seen. Not expected to live. Surely he would be better dead. All this I remembered, while the desirable things of life, like living phantoms, stole quietly into my brain. Look, looked at me wistfully and crept away again, beckoning, pointing to England in a few days. And that's a, 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 a powerful quote, I think. What, now, what happens from, for the rest of the war? Well, he spends the remainder of the war in Britain because by this time he, he'd been promoted to... Uh, oh, yeah, we said acting captain. captain, yeah. He, he relinquishes his commission on uh, health grounds on the 12th of March 1919, but he's allowed to retain the rank. Yeah, so it, that's the end of his war. I remember the the the, the says about um, Armistice Day. He took no pleasure in it. He hated the common people celebrating because in the end he is a bit of a snob. Uh, he has a, a a sentimental attraction to his lads in the ranks, but he's a strange. It, it, it's he's of his class. He's of his time. Uh, he lives for a bit in Oxford. He, he visits his. You know, he doesn't do much he dabbles a bit in politics for a while uh, he takes up the post as literary editor of the of the daily herald but then he branches into prose doesn't he from 1928 and this is my favorite things what does he write he writes uh, memoirs of a fox hunting man which he it was anonymously published um uh, 
other, and, and it was well. supposed to be a fictionalised uh, autobiography. It's immediately accepted as a classic, and it brings its author well-deserved fame as a prose writer. It's cra- it is a cra- it's part of... It's, yeah, you mentioned it earlier. The central uh, character is George Sherston. He's, he's a lazy bugger. Oh, God, please don't use language like that. This is a podcast for He, he is. He's la- <laughs> just a country gentleman content to play cricket and go hunting foxes. And Before then war changes his life. Who does that sound like? I wonder who he based it on. Now, overall, <laughs> it's a, a fairly humorous work, and, and it's very different from most of his war poems. And there's two more, isn't it? Because it becomes the George Sherston trilogy. So what are the other two volumes? Uh, there's Memoirs of an Infantry Officer, which uh, is 1930, and Sherston's Progress in 1936. Now, collectively, they're brilliant, and I'll recommend everybody to read them. They are fundamentally... He changes names of individuals, but actually it's the same as his diaries. Uh, and then he puts out three volumes of real autobiography, and they are, I'll briefly gather, The Old Century, The Wield of Youth, and Siegfried's Journey. And I recommend all of them. I also, you know... Uh, He's a great writer of prose. Uh, his poetry's okay, but he's a great writer of prose. Uh, now, uh, he dies... A, he is a, a, an interesting life, but we're doing the soldier bit. It's over. He dies of stomach cancer, 1st September 1967. He's buried at St Andrew's Church at Mel's in Somerset. Must have a look at that. What books do you recommend to read about him? Well, there's Secret for Sassoon, The Making of a War Poet, 1886-1918, by uh, Jean Moorcroft Wilson. There's uh, Regimental Records of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, Volume 3, 1914-18, France and Flanders by Dudley Ward. Siegfried Sassoon by John Stuart Roberts. And the Siegfried Sassoon Diaries, edited by Rupert Hart Davies. Well, there we go, Gary. I hope you enjoyed that. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, a bit of a departure for us, I thought. Let's hope people enjoy it. Cheers, John. Cheers, Pete. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?